Father, we began with the heavens declare the glory of God, and now we sing, let the cross, let it be our glory ever. What we're trying to say, dear God, is that we wish for you to be front and center always, always, always. As we go back to Scripture now and our teaching you have for us this day, make it clear. Engage not only our minds, but our hearts, I pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The title of this morning's teaching is The Pain of Circumcision. While normally we put pictures up to illustrate the teaching of the day, I just want you to relax. There will be no pictures today on the big screens. Let's face it. Circumcision is not a word that we use very much in our public conversations, and rightly so. But let's just deal with a definition of it right off the bat. Let's just get a definition that we can work with as we go through this morning's teaching. Here is the definition. Circumcision, the excising or cutting off of the fleshy growth on either the male or female reproductive organ. All right? When the word is used in Scripture, however, it always refers to the male reproductive organ. And that's why the fleshy cutting is called, and you'll get it in most literal translations, it's called the foreskin. Okay? Now, most baby boys who were circumcised in Bible times, even to today, were circumcised very, very early in their journey of life. In fact, the Lord Jesus... As a proper little Jewish baby boy was circumcised on the eighth day. And generally that still happens today. Although I do have a friend who was circumcised in the 22nd year. And it makes me hurt just thinking about it. You say, Dwight, why do we, Pastor, why are we getting into such an embarrassing topic like this? Answer, because we run straight into circumcision in the second chapter of Romans. That's why. In fact, Romans, this book that is our journey all this new year together, it comes smack dab face to face with it. We might as well get into it now. Open your Bible, please, to the, God, to the epistle of the church in Rome. Romans is our journey. Circumcision must be our study today. And uh, you know the drill. Take out your new study guide, please. It is in your worship bulletin this morning. If you got in without a worship bulletin and a few of you in your crowd, only one of you grabbed the bulletin. Ushers, very quickly, please, would you put these uh, study guides? You will need this study guide as you continue to brood on the subject. And I want to say to those of you watching on television right now, let me put our website. Because if you go to that website, do you see it on your screen now? www.pmchurch.tv Go into this series. It's called Wine and Milk. It's the fifth part of this series, and it's called The Pain of Circumcision, as you heard just a moment ago. Click on the study guide, and you will get the identical study guide popping up on your screen. And you can actually run it off or fill it out as we go through this teaching together. So you have the study guide in front of you. Let's take it. Take the first line. Any thoughtful journey through Romans must consider the theological symbolism. Write it in. It's the only time you'll write the word circumcision. It must consider the theological symbolism of circumcision. But before we actually open 
Romans again, a bit of history by way of reminder. Once upon a time, there was a friend of God named Abraham who, with his barren wife, Sarah, left where they were living in today's Iraq, somewhere near Baghdad, and went all the way up the Fertile Crescent and came back down in search of God's promised land. Once Abraham had pitched his tents and set up home in Canaan, God came to him with a most unusual command. I want you to take a look at the command. Go back to the book of beginnings, please. Go back to the book of Genesis. Find Genesis chapter 17. A little bit of history. We've got to know the history before we get into today's teaching in in, uh, full force. Genesis chapter 17, please. Now, I'm going to put this in high gear, ladies and gentlemen. So strap on your seatbelt and let's just let's just fly through this one together. All right. Genesis chapter 17, verse one. I'm in the New International Version. Here we go. When Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God almighty. I am El Shaddai. That's what it is in the Hebrew. I am the omnipotent one. Walk before me, Abram. And be blameless, verse 2, I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Drop down to verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Here's what I want to do. I want to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Drop down to verse 10, therefore, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, verse 11, you are to undergo circumcision. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born into your house. You bought a slave, even the slave. Drop down to verse 13. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. One more verse. 14. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you won't cut it off, you will be cut off. Why? Write it down, please. Because circumcision from the very beginning was intended by God to be a sign of covenant, faith, write it in, faith, trust in Him. Do this as a sign that you trust me to be your forever God and Savior. And every time a male child of Abraham looked down, he was reminded of God's everlasting, as we just read, everlasting covenant in the flesh. And so from generation to generation to generation, this this right was passed on. I bet you didn't know this, but there came a time. Did you know this? There came a time when God actually outlawed circumcision. No more. No more babies to be circumcised. It's that moment. You remember Kadesh Barnea? You remember when they sent the 12 spies in? The 12 spies come back and say, wonderful land, horrible giants. We can't do it. And why is it the people always tend to gravitate toward the negative report? And it was, it was true then. The whole camp rebels against God. God is so hurt over their refusing to trust Him after everything He's done for two years since coming out of the mighty Exodus. And God says, okay, Moses, mark the, write this down, will you? For the next 38 years, no baby boy born to this massive movement will be circumcised. I'm going to wait till every rebel man and woman until their mounds dot the dusty trail of those wilderness wanderings. And when you go into the promised land, I'll think about changing my mind. Take a look at this, Joshua. 
They've just crossed the Jordan River, all right? A whole generation of rebels is now dead. This is Joshua chapter 5. Find Joshua 5. Notice this. Joshua chapter 5. Having crossed the Jordan. Now, here we come. Verse 2. At that time, after they're, they're now on the promised land side of the Jordan. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath. Haraloth. Now drop down to verse, verse 8. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Nobody's moving anywhere for a while. All right? Why? Ah, ladies and gentlemen, here is this very incident is a compelling evidence. Write this down. Compelling evidence that circumcision was always intended by God to symbolize, write it down, an internal experience rather than an external identity. Remember, the rebels were circumcised externally. No covenant faith, no trust in God at all. You die and we'll start over. Which is precisely why God is trying to teach this new generation, even before they're circumcised, just before crossing over in Deuteronomy. He's trying to teach them the meaning of circumcision. Take a look at this. This is from the New Revised Standard Version, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Circumcised, God says, circumcise then the foreskin. There it is. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and do not be stubborn any longer. And you're saying, oh, mercy, how in the world am I supposed to circumcise myself Hallelujah. Look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. By the way, you can see it's not only the males that are involved with the symbolism of circumcision, also the females, your whole descendants. Now, why will God circumcise our hearts so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and so that you may live? Obviously. And this is such a, a, a beautiful, obvious. God says, I'll step in. I'll be the one to circumcise you myself. What's the point? Write it down, please. Circumcision was always intended to be a spiritual more than a physical experience. Case in point. Now, I didn't know this before my research study this last week. Did you know that the neighbors around the Jews were all circumcised too? I didn't know that. Except for one notorious exception, the Philistines, uncircumcised. Everybody else is. Now, having said that, let's go, I, I want you to read this in your own Bible. Jeremiah chapter 9. Before sacking Jerusalem, in one last desperate appeal through his man, Jeremiah, God is pleading with Israel to get serious about the meaning of circumcision again. Take a look at this. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah 9. Drop down to the very end of the chapter, verse 25. The days are coming, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Now, the Hebrew reads, literally, those who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. See, you're circumcised, I know you are, but you're not. Now, notice the litany of those who are circumcised in the flesh. Verse 26, Egypt, Judah, 
Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert and in distant places. For all these nations are really, when you get down to it, uncircumcised. And even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in the heart. Ladies and gentlemen, it ought to be clear, the Ammonites and the Moabites are physically circumcised. But are they saved? No, you're not saved because you're circumcised not in the right place. You need to be circumcised in the heart. And that's why Jeremiah 4.4, again from the New Revised Standard Version, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, I beg of you. External compliance will never save you. That's what God is saying. Write this in, please. What God is saying is the heart, the heart, the heart. Write it in. The heart, the heart, the heart. That's what I'm trying to talk to you about, God says. You know, the Jews, they had a saying. No person who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna. Which being translated means as long as you've got an organ that is modified, you'll never go to hell. Hallelujah. Wrong comes the book of Romans. You'd be surprised, Paul says, how many are headed straight for hell and circumcised. You know why? Because having the truth has never saved Jews or Adventists. That's why. Now you're ready. Let's go to Romans chapter 2. We have spent weeks, several, in Romans 1. Now we go on to Romans chapter 2. Find it, please. Romans chapter 2. All right. Romans 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, O man. And by the way, the NIV mistakenly leaves out O man. It's right there in the Greek, but they leave it out. You'll see why it's important in just a moment. And so I put it there in the text. You therefore have no excuse, O man, you who pass judgment on someone else. You have no excuse. Now that O man is a sign. Paul is now entering what they call a diatribe. That's a literary form where you set up a phantom debater and you go after him. Hey, hey, you, you, boy, O man, I'm talking to you. So he set up an opponent in order to go through his logic now. You, O man, you have no excuse. Therefore, you have no excuse. And by the way, the therefore reminds us what we are here for. What, we, what are we here for? We are here to watch Paul now carefully construct a bullseye target. Let's put a bullseye on the screen. How many of you are into archery? You know bullseyes, don't you? All right. Now, the bullseye is that little red dot in the middle. Paul wants, he has that bullseye in mind for this target, but he doesn't want to disclose it or hit the bullseye too quickly. He needs the reader to indict himself. And so, as Douglas Moo, the great New Testament scholar, has suggested, Paul is leading us readers through a series of concentric circles, closer and tighter, while he builds his case for the indictment of the entire human race. Watch this. Let's, you, you have the bullseye without the circles in your study guide. Let's fill it out. The outer ring. What do we call it here? We call this the uh, first ring. The first ring on the outside. Do you know what that is? Paul indicts the whole human race. That's Romans 1.18. All are under the wrath of God. Okay? The whole human race. But then, beginning in verse 19 to the end of chapter 1, Paul says, I'm in, he's talking about pagans, pagans, pagans. You go, boy. You got him, got him, got him. Good. And then in chapter 2, where we now go... You know what? That ring is for the moral, the moral man, the fine, upstanding, very proper woman. Actually, you know, you read Romans chapter 1, that last half. After Paul's thundering indictment of the pagan world in that last half, our study just last time under the, about the wrath of God, readers 
of Romans are a bit surprised to find out that... You know, I thought, hey, wait a minute, time out, time out, Paul. I thought that was the bullseye. I thought you were nailing those pagans. I mean, I was saying, amen, amen. Uh, you know, what is there about us as humans, huh? Have you noticed that? It always feels good to cluck our tongues over those who are more wicked than we are. Well, it's the stuff of juicy gossip that keeps our nation's tabloids selling and our church's email lines buzzing. He, he did that. She did. Oh. What is it that we find a particular voyeuristic pleasure in somebody else's fall just to say, not me. Paul, skillfully in Romans chapter 1, is leading us to the trap. He's setting us up. And finally, when he gets through, he talks about the raunchy, pagan, sexual perversion. And then he gets through that vice list right at the end of chapter 1. And we're saying, yeah, God, thank God, not me. And Paul says, gotcha. I gotcha. You, oh man, why do you pass judgment on the others? When, come on, read on here. For at whatever point you judge, this is verse 1 continuing, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Not me, Paul. Yes, you, Mr. Moral Man. I'm not lost. Yes, you are. Oh, I know you don't do the same overt, yucky, sexual stuff. But you'll find yourself somewhere in that vice list. You, oh man. By the way, I hope you will remember this line, the last half of verse 1. The next time you're tempted to criticize someone else, or you're with a person who is doing the criticizing, Paul is tipping us off. I I wish you would lock this into your brain. It will spare you a lot of embarrassment. Paul is tipping us off that the very weakness the critic is attacking in someone else is the same weakness he is hiding in himself. It's the gospel truth. I have watched it over the years. It's a little law of life. Critics unwittingly expose themselves the moment they identify someone else's weakness. The classic case, it happened a bunch of years ago, but there were two televangelists. One was named Jimmy Swaggart and the other was named Jimmy Baker. And one went after the other over his sexual fall and the press scooped it out and found out that the one going against the other himself was fallen sexually. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, we tend to criticize in others what we cloak in ourselves. Do you know why we do it? Once in a while, I'm around very negative people. I don't like being around them very long. They just bug me. Negative people are not fun to be around. Critical people, you can have them. But when I'm around them, I'm watching. Do you know why we do that? Because it's because we are so intimate with our own weakness, we have the proclivity to instantly spot it in somebody else. And to cover up our own, we tend to talk about somebody else. The next time you open your mouth, you're telling me a lot about you when you criticize. Moral of the story, don't criticize. Don't judge. You know, when we were kids, we were absolutely right. When you point your finger at somebody, don't forget, ha, 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 three fingers are pointing back. Remember that? Yeah. Paul hurries. He says, listen, I can't stop here. I've got to get on to this bullseye. But before we hit the bullseye, two beautiful vignettes of God you've got to see before that arrow goes in the center. The first one is right here at the end of verse 4. I'll just read the whole verse. Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness? 
tolerance and patience, not realizing, here it comes, that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. I remember one time when our son Kirk had gotten into trouble and he and I were having a heart-to-heart talk, which meant I was doing all the talking. But as I reasoned with him, I felt my own heart reaching out to his as I was trying, attempting to draw him into a realization of what he had done and a confession of what had happened. And I, the reason I will always remember this particular time is because suddenly, while I'm looking into his early teen face, suddenly it was this, I saw his heart just come right out and into his face and that moment of recognition came and his, his little eyes began to brim with tears and his lower lip began to tremble and suddenly he burst into a heartfelt confession of what had happened. And I'm telling you, in that moment, I grabbed him and held him close to me. That's the way God is with me when I sin. When you and I fall, the Holy Spirit... Have you noticed this? The Holy Spirit always draws near and begins to earnestly converse with us. And have you noticed who does all the talking? It's the Spirit. He talks. He tells us about Calvary. He talks of God's, God's righteousness, His holiness. He describes God's grace and His pardon and His cleansing. And the Holy Spirit is going like this, going, 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 and suddenly it hits me. I am a sinful man, and when I cry out, and when you cry out, oh God, like that publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. In that instant, the arms of God reach out, and He pulls you to His chest. And He says, cry on now. The goodness, the kindness of God is what leads us. Isn't that beautiful? It's not God's anger that leads us. It's not God's holiness that leads us. It's not God's righteousness. It's His goodness. His heart is just drawing, saying, I want you, I want you to see. You'll kill yourself if you don't see what this is doing to you. Paul doesn't stop there. He says, hey, I've I got to get to this bullseye, but there's one more vignette. You've got to see this. And Paul says, hey, you want to, I, I want to talk about those pagans that you dissed a moment ago. Those pagans. Let's talk about them. Drop down to verse 14 here. Indeed, Paul writes, when Gentiles who... Oh, this is beautiful. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. Since verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that God adjusts His judgment according to your life story? It's not one size fits all. No way, Jose. Do you know what? What can be sin for me? What is sin for me may not be sin for you. The problem is, you see, if it's sin for me and I've got this sensitized conscience, this is what creates problems within the community of faith. I am so ticked off that it's become sin for me and misery loves company. That's why I spend all my time making sure it's sin for you too. We're hard on each other. Why? Because we don't like to be the only ones that have to give it up. So I'm going to go around and make sure everybody else gives it up. Pick, 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 pick. No, God says, your life story is how I'll judge you. I will judge you by the light that shined into your heart along the way. You will only have to live up, not to what others tell you, but to what I show you. All I ask of you. Which is why, by the way, in heaven, you know this to be true, in heaven there will be pagans who will say, Jesus who? We're going out as Jesus who? 
who do not know the name of God. They'll be there. Prophets and kings. Oh, I love this. Take a look at this. Jot down this reference, will you? Among all nations, kindreds, and tongues. God sees men and women who are praying for light and knowledge. Their souls are unsatisfied. Long have they fed on ashes. Although in the depths of heathenism, in the heart of Hinduism, it could be with no knowledge of the written law of God nor of His Son, Jesus, they have revealed in manifold ways the working of a divine power on mind and character. And now here comes this line. I love it. Heaven's plan of salvation is broad enough to embrace the whole wide world. Hallelujah. God isn't sitting in heaven saying, who can I lose? He's sitting in heaven saying, how many can I save? The whole wide world. Now, how does that end? I better finish it. God, God longs to breathe into prostrate humanity the breath of life. And He will not permit any soul to be disappointed who is sincere in His longing for something higher and nobler than anything the world can offer. God says, Ah, oh, boy, I want to save you. Hey, girl, I want to save you. L- do this. Live up to the light that you have. That's all I ask. Live up to the light that I shine on your path. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful God. What do you say? I mean, does that, does that strike you as a wonderful God or what? You're not sure? Paul's painting a target. And now at last he's ready for the bullseye. Let's put the target back up. He said the outer circle, he said, I'm going to get the whole human race indicted. Next circle, pagans. Next circle, the moral man, the very proper, upright woman. And now Paul is ready for that arrow to go through the heart of the bullseye. Now he will turn to the Jew. What is the Jew? Would you fill out the very next sentence? It's the bullseye of the saved. Quote, unquote. Put the quotation marks around it. It's the bullseye of the saved. People like you and me who think they've got the inside track to eternity. All right. Here we go. Verse 17. Now, if you call yourself... By the way, you're going to read the name Jew. Would you do me a favor? This particular audience, those of you on TV, watching on television, you may do whatever you wish. But would you do this, please? When you come to the word Jew, would you just hear Seventh-day Adventist in its place? See if it fits. Now, all right, just lost my place. So we go back to Romans 2. And what was the verse? 17? All right, here we go. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself a Seventh-day Adventist, If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, verse 18, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, verse 19, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, verse 20, oh, I am an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the infants, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You who say the truth, the truth, the truth, we've got the truth. Hey, we are the remnant. Paul says, I'm talking to you, remnant, who are convinced you have the truth. If you have all that, let me finish my point, he says. Verse 21, then you, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Give me a break. Don't you practice what you preach? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Oh, I know, no grand theft and larceny, but you know when you're filling your briefcase going home after the day at the work, what goes into that briefcase that belongs to the office? How about that little five-finger discount from your roommate's desktop? 
You who preach, you should not steal. Do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? I know you don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, but do you dream about sleeping with her? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Josephus tells us that back in AD 90, two Jews came up to a very noble Roman lady who was a believer in the Jewish religion. And they came up to her and they convinced her to give a large sum of money to the, to the temple in Jerusalem. Only they absconded with that money. And when Emperor Tiberius heard about it, AD 90, he expelled every resident Jew from the city of Rome. Scholars say, maybe that's what Paul's talking about. You preach against idolatry, idolatry, but you rob the temple. You who brag about the law, not nine of the, not nine of the ten, but all ten we keep. You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the laws? It is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul's searing point, no matter how orthodox you consider yourself to be, you still fall far short of God's law and truth. You still break the law. Okay, fine, Paul. Okay, okay. So we're not great law keepers, but I want to remind you something, Paul. We got circumcision. We are the remnant. We got circumcision. And Paul, who is arguing with this phantom debater, says, Oh, you want to, you're throwing in circumcision now? He goes on, verse 25, circumcision. Let me talk about it. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Verse 26. If those who are not circumcised, by the way, keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, O Sabbatarian, even though you have the Sabbath and are the remnant, you'll be lost and he'll be saved. Paul's punchline, verse 28. For a man is not a Jew, he's not an Adventist. If he is only one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical, verse 29, no, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise. The name Jew means praise. It's from Judah, Yada. Play on words, such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Dwight, what is the point? Pastor, write it down. Seventh-day Adventists face the very same danger as did the Jews. Get that point. Because, because we know we are right. We too are tempted to take spiritual refuge in our orthodoxy, in our biblical and theological rightness. Like the Jews, salvation for us has become the corpus of truth. We have the truth, the truth, the truth. Hallelujah. And like the Jews in Jeremiah's day, by the way, who blindly kept trying to whistle in the dark to each other, God surely would not reject us as a people because the temple, the temple, we go around the truth, the truth, the truth. Got it. But just like Israel of old today, we risk in the third millennium incurring the same stinging divine pronouncement. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Look at this. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Richard John Newhouse is absolutely right. Write it down. It is a fearful thing to be chosen. Fearful, terrible thing. What advantage... You're saying, but come on, why, why, why would I want to be a part of this community then? Why should I 
Paul anticipates that very question. Look at, look at verse 1, chapter 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What's the advantage of being chosen? Oh, you have the inspired writings. Get it? You have the inspired writings. The oracles belong to you. But oracles will never save the remnant. You know why? Write it down because circumcision circumcision is 18 inches off. Write it down. You say, Dwight, did you say 18 inches? Yep. That's the distance not only from the male organ to the heart, but it is also the distance from the head to the heart as well. The Jews, both men and women, figured that the circumcised organ was really a symbol of the head, the corpus of, the, the corpus of truth, the law, the temple. We got it. And they were wrong. And they were lost. For with salvation, it is not the head, the head, the head. With salvation, it's the heart, the heart, the heart. Of course, universities like this one and the remnant are defenders of the mind and seekers after truth. But ladies and gentlemen, therein lies our own danger as well. For the head can be satisfied while the heart is lost. And if the heart is lost, you are lost. Hence, this one line that appears much later in the book, we'll end with it, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Isn't this something? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your... What's the next word, ladies and gentlemen? Believe in your what? Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. It's the heart, the heart, the heart. You know why? Because the heart is the organ of faith. And faith is at the heart of relationship. And relationship is why Jesus died of a broken heart. Which is why today you may be 18 inches short of eternity. It's no wonder in Scripture God speaks these words, My child, give me, give me your heart. I need your heart. The heart, the heart, the heart. Let us pray. Oh God. Oh God. Wouldn't it be embarrassing? We repeat the very same mistake. Putting all our hope in the external. And neglecting to our demise as a people. The heart, the heart, the heart. Holy Father, in a university that prides itself in the head, please touch our hearts, I pray. Oh God, we must be saved. The heart, the heart, please. And while every head is still bowed in prayer, and your eyes are closed, please. This is not a call for general rededication. But I can't come to the Amen and not, not give an invitation. There's a man here who needs to give his heart to Jesus. I don't know what that means. 
But if you need to give your heart, it may be to give it back again. If there's a man here who needs to give his heart to Jesus, I wish you would do it right now. If there's a woman here who needs to give her heart back to Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe not, but right now, I wish you'd give your heart to Him. This is going to be just a simple conclusion. And it's not a call for general rededication, but if you need to give your heart to Jesus right now, I want you to crawl across those knees and those feet. And I wish you'd come right here to the front. And I want to say a special prayer for you before we hurry out into the cold and the wet. If you need to give your heart to Jesus. Everybody else has their heads bowed, their eyes closed, they're praying. But if you need to give your heart to Jesus, start over with Him. Give it, Lord, you can have all of me. You can have, you can have my heart. I wish you'd slip out of that pew right now. In the back of the balcony, from the choir behind me. The rest of you, your heads are down and you're praying. If nothing's happening in your heart right now, this is a moment that God has with someone else then. Might be sitting right beside you, might be right behind you. And a heart right now is saying, Oh, you know, I need to come to Jesus. I have been I have lived as if the heart belonged to me, and I've made a mess of my life. Now you come. You come just as you are. Jesus says. She who comes to me, I'll never cast out. You just come. You bring your heart with you and give it to Jesus. I'm not going to prolong this, but if there's anybody on the back of the balcony, your heart is struggling right now. If your heart's struggling, that's Jesus saying, why don't you give me your heart, son, daughter? I'm talking to you. You're here today because I needed to speak to you. God bless you. Your heart. We train the head. But God wants the heart. Of course, He wants both. But while you feel your head, don't ignore your heart. Confess with it. Oh, I believe that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised Him from the dead. And you know what? Paul says, you're saved, my man. You are saved right now. You bring your heart to Jesus, He will save you on the spot. This is not about coming to a church. After Romans 2, we're not talking church at all right now. Because the formal church too often has prided itself in having an exclusive hold on salvation. As Paul has told us, there will be some very tragic surprises at the end of time. When I had all that truth, and it didn't save me. Nope. It's the heart. The heart. Anybody else? You need to come to Jesus. Pastors, would you uh, be with these who come forward? Thank you. Anyone else? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Oh, Jesus. Here we are. Just as we are. You know the story. The heart, the heart. We heard you. The Scripture. 
We give what we have, Jesus. I pray for these men and women who are bringing to You their heart. Oh God, You are the one. You are the one who does this heart transplant. You said You'd do it. Take the heart they give. Take that heart of stone and replace it with a brand new heart. Let him know he's saved. With his lips he confesses. With his heart he believes he's saved. Let her know she goes home today saved. I don't care what happened last night. I don't care what happened last week. I don't care what happened last year. She's saved. She's saved. For the goodness and kindness of God has drawn you to repentance. You're saved. Oh, Jesus, please don't pass us by as a people. If we repeat the tragic mistake of the chosen long ago, oh, God, it must not be. Don't pass us by. We need you. Our hearts need you. Christ, we need you. And so take us. Take us just as we are and hold us. Please. Through the Spirit of God and the kindness of the Father, journey with us. Amen.